Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter, CEO and founder of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the author of Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. This summer, while at the ACFE Global Fraud Conference, several speakers and friends of the podcast and I got together to play an escape room. Before and after our escape room adventure, I found myself engrossed in stories from investigators around the U.S., and I didn't want the conversation to end. It was these valuable conversations that inspired the format for the next series of investigation game podcast episodes. So for the remainder of 2022, at least, I've invited investigators to join me in sharing case stories from investigations worked in a variety of areas. In this episode, I'm joined by Clay Glasgow and Brian Willingham, and we discuss investigations involving estates. Clay is a partner with Hogan Taylor and leads the firm's forensic valuation and litigation services practice. He has over 20 years of experience in public accounting and has provided forensic accounting services throughout most of his career. Clay and his team serve clients in the areas of financial investigations, business disputes, economic damages, and business valuations. Clay enjoys using his accounting expertise to help clients navigate high stakes matters that require careful, objective investigation and analysis. He's a certified public accountant and has also earned the Certified in Financial Forensics, Accredited in Business Valuation, and Certified Fraud Examiner credentials. Brian Willingham has been a private investigator since 2001. For the past 13 years, he's been the founder and president of Diligentia Group and is based in New York. Over the years, he's developed an expertise in open source public record research and developed an open source intelligence course in conjunction with PI education. He's been a regular contributor to a number of industry magazines and publications like PI Magazine and Pursuit Magazine. Brian is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts and is a certified fraud examiner. Welcome to the Investigation Game podcast. Thank you to both Brian Willingham and Clay Glasgow for joining me today. Today, we are going to be sharing some case stories that involve estates, investigations, issues, things that we might have gotten into as it related to estates or trusts. And so I'm just going to jump in and let Brian, Brian, jump in. Tell us one of your stories. So the, the thing that comes to my mind when I when we talk about estates is a case of one of the first cases that I worked in when I started as a private investigator. Um, and when when I started, it was a fascinating case. We were involved, heavily involved in in uh, high indemnity life insurance cases. So big insurance policies where there's some unusual death, international death, big policies where there's some mysterious form of death and they needed to do some investigation uh, relating to it. So the, the case started, and this is a long story, but I'll you know kind of pare it down for posterity's sake, uh, is two gentlemen who owned, who were cousins who owned uh, a, a number of gas stations in the Connecticut area. And over time, they had collected $80 million worth of life insurance uh, on each other as key man insurance. In business, you want to have some key man insurance in case your business partner passes away. In fact, backing up for a second, at this time, we only knew about one $20 million life insurance policy. For somebody who owned a couple of gas stations, seemed a little bit crazy. For somebody who's a wealthy individual in their 30s or 40s, it might be a little bit different. So we get into this case. Um, and we are, um, as we're doing some investigation, we're contacting other life insurance companies. And we determine that there's multiple other policies relating to them that adds up to $80 million. So the, the antennas start going up. And me being like this new investigator, who really doesn't know anything going on. 
you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, I know a friend that owns a gas station. I'm interested in like, how much is a gas station really worth? And what I find out pretty quickly, and this is just my curiosity, the gas stations don't make a whole lot of money. You make like six or seven, eight cents on a gallon of gas. And doing the math, <laughs> this gas station was on, um, on a, uh, off of a major highway. So it was obviously pumping quite a bit of gas. But doing the math, they had to pump like gajillions of gallons of gas in order to be worth the amount of money that they were claiming to be worth. So when you get a $20 million life insurance policy, Joe Schmo can't walk into the life insurance company and say, hey, I want a $20 million life insurance. You have to show some sort of reason why you're worth that or show um, some financial statements that you're worth that much. So they had provided some financial statements saying that each of these gas stations was worth uh, $20, $25 million. And the only way that they would be worth $20 or $25 million uh, is if they own the property, they own the building, and they were pumping gajillions of dollars worth of gas. So in short, our antennas were going up because they didn't own the gas station and there was no way that they could become pumping gajillions of dollars. So um, one of our first things that after we'd done some sort of initial investigation, we interviewed um, the, the, one, of the, one of the people dies uh, and we interviewed the surviving spouse. The surviving spouse, they put on this good show for us and the business partner, we interviewed them together. And my job was to do surveillance on the person who was anybody who left the house after the, after the interview. The person, the, the people that did the interview, they get out and they say, hey, why don't you back off a little bit? Because this seems pretty legitimate. Something, there's something that seems to be, it's all seemed to add up. Why don't you back off a little bit? But we tail them. And the first thing they do is go to a payphone and make a phone call from a payphone. So it's bizarre. I mean, this is in the 2000s. So we're not talking about the cell phones exist and phones exist. And what repeatedly happens over the next hour is he goes from this person goes from payphone to payphone to payphone, making all these various calls. So now our antennas are raised up even more. And we ended up doing lots of surveillance on these people. Uh, and ultimately, what we ultimately come to the conclusion, this was around the time of 9-11. Uh, these were foreigners that were from countries that, you know, may have had some terrorism ties. And the, the main concern was this $80 million, was it possibly going to fund terrorism? Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, this estate that was collecting this money, who these people were, where the money was going, and all of this stuff. To cut a, a very long story short, um, you know, through lots of investigation. That wasn't just the surveillance, but, you know, this the, the, the meat and bones of it uh, I've kind of told you about. It, it turns out that the person who had passed away um, had died several years before and re-entered the country under a different name. And the reason we were able to determine that uh, is because we found some, we got fingerprint records. Uh, we were able to match them to people who had died, that had died previously. We had also determined when we were doing research in on the foreign country that in order to, the person that died, uh, died in a fiery car crash. And the only reason they were to be able to identify the body was, uh, through a wallet that was next to the person. We subsequently were able to determine that the doctor who, um, you know, who um, witnessed or, or signed off on the statement 
was had some shady past. And the only thing that identified him was this wallet. And we were able to determine that the um, that a body to buy a body that was burnt to a crisp in that country cost something like what a like U.S. hundred dollars. Oh my so, god. Ultimately, these two gentlemen who claimed they were cousins were actually brothers. They had pulled off the same scheme uh, 10 years earlier for $9 million. The, the brother who had supposedly died came back into the country under a different name, and they plotted this whole scheme. And um, we've never been able to find the person who claimed they were dead. Uh, the other person uh, spent many years in jail. It was not ultimately ruled to be tied to terrorism. Um, but it was a fascinating case. It was sort of an interesting, like, entree vu into my into the private investigator world. Um, and you know, the, the the surveillance is what everybody always thinks about with private investigators. I don't do. I haven't done surveillance in almost probably since that case. Uh, but it's such an incredible, like, adrenaline rush. Like you're watching this guy making a payphone from call, making a call from a payphone, and you're like, you're like in the movies. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. what are they talking about? And why are they going to the next payphone? Um, so it was a fascinating sort of entrance, sort of into the investigative industry. Yeah. So a couple of questions: Who hired you for this case? So the life insurance company. So, you know, there's a contestable period. Uh, there's a two-year contestable period after you get your life insurance policy. Um, if you can determine there was some sort of fraud uh, in the policy or something that they signed, um, there is a, you know, a way that they can not simply not pay it. After the two-year contestable period, there's obviously a way to challenge it, but it becomes much more difficult. So it was one of the life insurance com- companies. Interestingly, a couple of the policies I don't think were within that contestable period, and they had actually already started paying them out some of the money for some of the other policies. In fact, I don't think it was actually the insurer. It was the reinsurer. So the reinsurers are the ones that are really on the hook for all this. So I think they were ultimately the ones that had hired us. So had they filed a lawsuit or something that made it where you could go get all of those other policies? No. So they, we were sort of cooperating. They hadn't filed a lawsuit yet. There was just sort of in this initial sort of contestable period. Uh, and, you know, having worked in the industry, our firm had done a lot of work with these other industry, uh, with a lot of these other companies. And, you know, they don't have this one database. I don't even think it exists even now today where you can see if there's policies all around from the various other carriers. There may be something today now that we're sort of in the digital age, but this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So it did not uh, exist then. Okay. And so then which, which person was going from payphone to payphone? Like after the interview, it was one of the subjects? It was the business partner, the business partner who was, you know, the business partner and the wife, the wife, supposed wife, who was actually not his wife. It was like his other cousin. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. The business partner was the one going from payphone to payphone. And we ultimately determined that he was calling somebody in their home country. Uh, we were never able to determine who that was, uh, but we had, we presume that it might have been the person who was supposedly dead, but we don't, mm-hmm. we'd never been able to find that out. And so did the business partner go to jail? Is that the one who went to jail? He did. Yep, exactly. So it was, you know, financial fraud, you know, they'd filed all these financial fraudulent uh, statements uh, yeah. and, and they had, had actually successfully collected, I think $10 million and were trying to collect the, the remaining seventy million, uh, which would have would put him in a nice little payoff there. No joke. And then you mentioned fingerprints. So I have yeah. to ask: Was that in coordination with law enforcement, or was that something you were able to do 
the private side. No, that's exactly right. So uh, ultimately, the Postal Service got involved uh, for you know, mail fraud. Um, and, you know, law enforcement got involved partly because of the whole terrorism angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly because we realized that this was a much bigger, there was identity theft. We had determined that there was this other person who had uh, entered the country and received this insurance policy many years ago. Um, so yeah, law enforcement did have to get involved for that. And was it federal law enforcement? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, okay. it was. Yeah. Awesome. Such an interesting case. It was really fun. Really wild. Yeah. What team did it take to crack that? That's pretty pretty complicated it really is you know and and they, you know life insurance fraud is it's you know you don't hear about it nearly as you hear always about the you know the guy who killed his spouse kind of thing uh this one was fascinating it's one of those you know this is actually i was working with my father's investigative firm and he had done a lot of these for uh, in his life and there's some fascinating cases some that he's tried to pitch to 60 minutes and but it's one of those things that you see on on Dateline, you know, people that have died in some foreign country falling off a cliff and mysterious times. And, uh, so th- they're fascinating and people are so motivated by, <laughs> obviously it's one of the key motivations motivated by money and they'll do a lot of things in order <laughs> to get that money, including killing their significant others or oh fake God. killing their significant others too. Okay. So was the 10 million or were the payments that had been paid out, were they recovered or were they already spent? I think they ultimately were. No, I think some of the money might've been transferred, uh, but I think it was ultimately recovered. Yeah. I think okay. it was. That's super interesting. I ha- I have to say, I've never worked one like that. I, I, I'm on this kick right now that I think that cases are the types of cases that investigators work are geographical, you know, like you're in New York and just the types of companies that are represented there as opposed to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's just a little yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I wind up getting involved in a lot of massive financial fraud cases. You know, you know Preparo was at the ACP conference a couple of years ago, and he mentioned like his four most successful uh, cases that he had worked on. Um, and I had worked on like three of them. You know, <laughs> I had a small part in them. But, yeah. you know, th- because they are geographical mm-hmm. and, you know, the Bernie Madoffs happen out here, they don't happen in Tulsa, <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> or maybe you might have your own. Smaller versions. Own. Yeah. yeah. We've got some exactly. smaller, like, oil and gas versions, but, yeah. When I joined the financial investigation industry over 15 years ago, my goal was to work as many cases as possible, but getting those first few cases felt extremely challenging. For example, how do I get the casework without the experience? And then how do I get the experience without the casework? And when I get the casework, will I know what to do? So I wrote Data Sleuth using data in forensic accounting engagements and fraud investigations to solve this very problem. It is the book I needed so many years ago. In this book, I explain how to start a financial investigation from case planning to finding best evidence to incorporating non-financial evidence like interviews and open source intelligence, and ultimately how to put it all together for your client or even law enforcement with step-by-step details and case examples. If you want to gain confidence in financial investigations to build your case experience, you need to read my book. Data Sleuth is available on Amazon, Goodreads, or wherever you like to buy books. All right, Clay, I'm curious, what types of investigations have you worked in an estate? Well, my, my example does not have quite the same uh, level of intrigue as Brian's. L- Little Rock may even be a rung down from Tulsa. So. Oh, Little Rock, Arkansas? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. 
I've never actually been there. Neither have I. Yeah, so so I um, have had several embezzlement cases involving estates. Um, I picked one that I, I think really kind of shows the human side of fraud. Um, this is this is a case where we were appointed by the Pulaski County District Court, the probate division, to investigate what was referred to initially as, as discrepancies in a guardian's accounting. So in Arkansas, and it may be the I think it's the same in other states. When someone is placed as a guardian over another person, they have to file annually with the court, they have to file an accounting because they're they're basically given complete control of that person. And there's a there's a specific form that they have to file that, you know, where you, you start with the beginning um, estate value and, you know, account for all of the income, all the expenses, anything, assets that were sold, liabilities paid off or, or incurred to get to the ending estate value. So in this case, um, there was a daughter that had been placed as the as her mother's guardian for the last five years or so of her life. Her mother was basically an invalid the last five years, um, and her, the daughter um, was you know the care, her mother's caregiver. She sacrificed a lot. Um, she was from Dallas. The daughter. The mother lived in Little Rock and the daughter moved to Little Rock uh, just so that her mom could stay in her house in her final years. And, you know, it was just a huge sacrifice. Her, the, the daughter's husband um, had to stay in Texas because he worked. And so, she, you know, she was basically separated for those five years from her husband to care for her mother. So just just a big significant burden. Um, when her mother passed away, daughter, the daughter and her brother, the the mother's son were the co-administrators, uh, administrators of the estate. So they were, as they were trying to settle the estate, the brother um, started noticing some problems with these annual accountings that his sister had filed over the years. Um, basically, the 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 accountings, the, the value of the state that a state that should have been there based on the accountings was much more than what was actually there. Um, it's kind of the the short of it. So he, the brother through his attorney raised this issue with the judge and then the judge appointed me to investigate, you know, what, what, what happened, you know, is there true, any validity to this? And if so, what, you know, figure out what happened. Um, so it was kind of an interesting situation where we had to work with the daughter to investigate her because she had all the records. Um, and just to kind of cut, cut straight to the chase, she was, she and her husband were basically living out of her mother's checking account. I mean, they were taking trips and doing home, paying for home renovations and, uh, you know, restaurant expenses, just just uh, anything you can imagine paying for themselves out of her mother's account. And that's the reason why the the estate um, filings didn't match what, with what was there, because they weren't estate expenses. So she didn't claim them as estate expenses, but she spent the money. So the money wasn't there. Yeah. So the numbers didn't add up. And, and so um, we testified in court, in court at a hearing about all of that. Um, ultimately, there was about a $300,000 deficiency in the estate. Uh, we weren't able to account for all of it, but it, it didn't matter really because she had a, you know, an, an obligation, a legal obligation to, you know, take care of the, of the funds and the funds were missing and she admitted it. So um, the court held her personally liable for that deficiency. Uh, so it was a really sad situation. You know, for, from her perspective, she was sacrificing. Um, her brother lived across the country. He wasn't doing anything for her mom. And, 
you know, so she just kind of rationalized that this was fair for her. Um, although she, she also received a compensation. She had a court approved salary that she paid herself. So, you know, fair, fair or not, that's what was, what was allowed under the arrangement. So she broke that and the court held her responsible for it. And whether she, I don't think the money's there anymore to, to repay it, but it, it was uh, settled up part, at least partly through the estate um, distribution. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Was it was some of that just allocated to her share? Some of it was. There wasn't enough left to really make the brother whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she's probably going to have to make payments to him over time. But um, yeah, ideally, there would have been enough in the estate to where he, he could have been gotten his fair share and then repaid what she had taken. But right. it wasn't wasn't enough to kind of make make it all wash out in the end. Did she ever talk about how she rationalized it? Did she ever rationalize it in open court or to anybody? Because I'm always fascinated by how people rationalize Yeah, she it. tried really hard to convince the judge or, you know, I, there was, yeah, she, she got got into kind of the sob story and it's it really was a sad story of, of her mother's kind of state that she was in. Um, so it def- the story definitely pulls on your heartstrings, but the judge is the judge. So he's not, that doesn't really matter. Um, but you know what she, she claimed that this is what her mother would have wanted, you know, that she was sacrificing a lot. This was fair. Her brother wasn't doing anything, you know, but at the end of the day, none of that really matters to a yeah. judge. It's funny. You always, I'm always fascinated by the rationalization part and just telling yeah. the story. I can hear it in my head is that she was sacrificing. Her brother was doing nothing. She was going to get the money anyway. And she wasn't hurting anybody, <laughs> you know, the, right. the victimless crime. You know, maybe her brother was not going to get nearly as much, but she deserved it because she was the one sitting there putting in all the effort. And he probably either didn't care nearly as much as she did or, you know, she's the one that picked up her whole life and, and, and did everything for it. So Exactly. Yeah, there's very similar dynamics in other other cases, similar cases that I've worked on. Um, in fact, my very my very first fraud examination, I was just a couple of years into my career, was an estate matter um, where uh, it was two brothers and one brother was in business with his father and they had a construction business together. The other brother was a CPA. And subsequent to his father's, the, the dad's death, the uh, CPA brother had a stroke and became an invalid. And uh, But but he had, he had this kind of moment of lucidity where he told his wife that he thinks his brother's stealing from the dad's estate. It hadn't been settled yet. And so the, the uh, wife hires an attorney that hires us to investigate. And, uh, you know, sure, sure enough, he was stealing. Um, and it was, it was, but it was a similar thing. Like he was, it was sort of the, the prodigal son and the older brother situation. Like he's, he's been there, like he, he and his dad were in business together. He, you know, he's, yeah. uh, do more for that reason. So those family dynamics definitely come into play. Yeah. I, I we've all got them. Yeah, I know. And I have an actual, um, I have a similar story to yours, Clay, um, that I had the, this was, there was this family and they had uh, mom, dad, like six kids, eight kids, something like that. And mm-hmm. uh, the baby was mom and mom's favorite for sure. And he worked on the ranch all these years with them while all the kids, they pretty much all lived in the same area, but you know, they had their own ranches or their own like oil and gas type things because this is in Oklahoma. And uh, they had gotten a really large ranch. They had oil and gas royalties. And so the dad decided at some point 
was advised, like, you need to put everything into this company and then you can save all this money on taxes. And anyway, it really complicated things because it ended up having like, I don't know, 20 partners or something by the time there were children and Mm. grandchildren and all this stuff and fractional shares of things. It's kind of crazy. But the siblings discovered, and this was around the time we were hired, they discovered that the youngest brother had purchased the like prime three to 400 acres of the ranch that had Mm. corrals and barns and fences and all this stuff and had purchased it from the company. And he was the general partner for the company. Dad had passed away. Mom is like not really with it. You know, I mean, that was a whole argument in the case. I'm sure as you can imagine, was she competent? Was she not? When all this went down and uh, he being this like general manager or essentially like a glorified ranch hand for his parents. He wasn't making a ton of money, although he had um, a salary from them. So how was he able to buy this prime farmland, you know, like in ranch with everything on it? And so he had figured out how to create um, or how to, what he told his siblings was that his parents had loaned him the money. Well, of course, by the time all the siblings hire an attorney and everything and start requesting things. There's definitely concerns about this loan document and there's concerns about uh, the legitimacy of the loan document. Did mom actually sign it? You know, all of these things. And not to mention there had been plenty of stories over the years that, oh, mom just gave me this money. But then of course, once you get attorneys or forensic accountants involved, investigators, they start asking, oh, so was there a gift tax return for this $200,000, you know? Uh, (laughs) No, darn it, we didn't file one of those. So we ended up discovering actually that he had also taken money out of his dad's trust because his dad had passed away and the trust should have gone to the mom. And then after she passed, it would go to the rest of, you know, it'd be divided between the children. And he had taken it out of his dad's trust um, and said, oh, mom said I could do it, you know, Uh, and that, Mm. of course, that was a loan, too. And so the story that I would always or the this case, gosh, these were some of the nicest clients I think I've ever had. This case went on for about six years. I think it switched attorneys three times and all this stuff finally mediated last year. But and and actually at mediation, I was in the room like they had to get this ginormous training room at the attorney's office because there were at least 20 members of the family who showed up, you know, because they're all fractional, like they have tiny shares in this business, but they have to all like sign off on uh, any settlement. So anyway, um, but essentially what this guy did and what we kept saying over and over every time we had the chance to in a deposition or um, even at the mediation was this guy took his, inher- he made sure he carved out his inheritance, you know, ahead of time. And what's so unfortunate about this situation was, yes, they got it settled and they were the, you know, my clients were happy, <laughs> the 20 clients were happy with the outcome, but because of the legal fees and everything involved, they still didn't end up with the best property, right? And then he's like, there was no money to really claw back. And then, so it just like, it came out of his inheritance. And then I think he still got some additional money. So it was like, he did all this shady stuff and took out the best first. And then he still ended up getting a little bit of an inheritance with like no penalty for doing any of this as 
the trustee of the trust and as the general manager of, you know, any of those fiduciary responsibilities right. because they chose to settle, you know, some of that just, you just have to yeah. give that up. That's really unfortunate. But I mean, just, I'm sure the, that was the rationalization too. You were working for one of the members of the family or the... I was working, this was a divided family by the time I got in. Right. Right. So... There were a couple siblings who sided with the youngest brother. And of course, if we had time for the whole case, you know, one of them, the ranch bought one of them a house. One, you know, some of them had some... <laughs> uh, Convenient. Yeah. Like they also got some of their inheritance early too, because they were chummy with the youngest brother. But then, so there were, I think there were two or three siblings, including the younger brother on one side. And then I had the rest of them. So the other like 15 to 20. And uh, anyway, fortunately that one did resolve in mediation because I can't even imagine. I mean, we had flow charts of how all this money flowed and then you've got the trust document involved and like what it said. And and then he ended up, uh, the longer the case went on, we kind of ended up having to update our report a lot. And so then we saw where his mom had decided, I'm doing air quotes for our audio listeners, his mom decided that uh, she needed to invest in some like working interests in Texas, I believe, you know, and she's like in her early 90s. Um, So he did a bunch of stuff like that, too. And, uh, you know, once the ranch became his and he had taken all this property, he also kept paying to fix it up and paid people to improve fencing and stuff as well. So all of that added up. I mean, it was well over a million dollars worth of uh, expenses after that. Mm. But Mm. yeah, the rationalization though was the same. Like, you know, he was mom's favorite. He took care of mom till she died, um, took care of dad. I mean, so. Yeah, well, and that, that person, that person, that child, whichever um, the others are likely to resent, that's probably the one that's going to be in charge as the administrator or the executor of the state. So, you know, I've tried to think like, what, what do people, parents need to do to avoid that? You know, before they die, like leave some instructions, separate some of that out, get others third parties involved in, you know, paying the bills and reviewing transactions so that those kind of questions don't, you know, temptations don't come up, you know. I think the sadder thing happens in not necessarily these big estates where there's a lot of money at stake is when these people really need it and they're smaller estates. And I imagine this happens all the time and we never hear about them because it's not worth paying tens of thousands of dollars to experts to to do this research. So, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And how do you try to avoid some of this stuff? And, you know, I don't know if some of it is avoidable because, you know, the people are still alive. They're still of of right mind. And, you know, even my own family, my my wife takes care of my, you know, my mother-in-law's stuff. I mean, she could she be doing something? (laughs) I mean, of course she could be. You know, you just hope that you're all on the same page with this this kind of stuff. So I imagine there's tons of other stories that we'll never, ever hear is my point with that. Yeah. And just like, you know, I, I've even told my dad in recent years, like, hey, you're on this bank account. Um, well, he and his sister are on this bank account uh, that belongs to my grandma. And I'm like, hey, just just like check it every now and then, you know, just go in and just see, you know, not that you want to feel like you're spying on your mom or your your sister or whatever, but just check it so that the conversation can happen. Because once that money's gone in these situations, you can't get it. I mean, you can't get it back. Just like Clay was talking about, Clay, you were talking about in your example. So um, it's really, it is really unfortunate. And just because of some recent like trust 
works, trust work we've been doing, you know, people say, oh, you need to put all this stuff in a trust. But then like the trust document doesn't even say how some of these things should be handled um, or it's so confusing or contradicts itself. So that can create a whole mess too. Yeah. Well, that, that would be one. Yeah. That, that would be the easiest thing is just to make sure that, that everything's clear in the documentation mm-hmm. before you die. Right. That would avoid a lot. Well, Brian, Clay, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me and with our listeners today. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Investigation Game Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about our investigation services and resources, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you have an investigation case story you'd like to share on a future episode, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.